the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The well-known parable of the father and his two sons is the third of three parables that Jesus provides in response to the Pharisees' complaints about his receiving sinners into fellowship. It's important for us to understand this as the occasion, as it shapes our interpretation of the parable's meaning. At the time of Christ, the term sinner wasn't a bland insult you threw widely about. It was a technical theological term that referred to a class of people who were ethnically and hereditarily Jewish, but whose manner of life contradicted the tenets of the law. As legal purists, the Pharisees had constructed an elaborate system of traditions that, in their minds, existed to safeguard faithfulness to the Torah by preventing anyone from getting near anything that could be construed as unfaithfulness. In the past, these infidelities against the Torah had resulted in ruin and exile and captivity and death, and they were not about to let that happen again. But this theoretically noble goal meant, in effect, that the Pharisees created a caste system with themselves as the gatekeepers and judges at the top, with the sinners and outsiders near the bottom. That group that violated Torah, but perhaps more often, that group that disregarded the extensive rules of the Pharisees. In St. Luke's Gospel, Jesus' teachings consistently contrast with the Pharisees' vision of the moral life of Israel, particularly when it comes to the treatment of sinners. The first mention of the term sinner in Luke's Gospel sets the tone for the rest of it, appearing in St. Peter's own good confession after the catch of the miraculous, the miraculous catch of fish, when he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. But having received this sinner as his central disciple, Jesus finds that sinners then flock to him, wanting to share fellowship with him. And this caught the attention of the Pharisees, who famously critiqued his choice of followers and confronted him at a dinner party, asking, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? His response, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. For Jesus, the righteous, if they really are righteous, have no need of a call to return because they're already near. They're already faithful to God and his law. Only those who are far away need a strong and loud call to come back. As Jesus said in the same conversation, it is not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. By the time that Jesus encounters the Pharisees in our gospel lesson this morning, who are in the background silently listening to the parable of the father and his two sons, these religious leaders have all but written him off. Earlier in the text, they would talk to him directly and say, why do you eat with this kind of people? But here, by this point in the gospel, they've given up that, and they stand at a distance and only turn and talk to themselves in a little circle and say, That one over there, he fellowships with 
tax collectors and sinners. There's no longer the possibility of a conversation or a relationship. He's become other to them, as unapproachable as the sinners with whom he associates. He is, to them, far off from the mark, a sinner himself, perhaps, and totally lost. This is not a new story. In fact, it's the story of, uh, what si- the story of what sin is and who sinners really are in the scriptures emerges through a series of stories like this, ones that result in exile and departure, of broken relationships with each other. The scriptures begin in Genesis with, a, the, the, with the first of a litany of stories of brothers who become exiled from and lost to one another. The first mention of the word sin in the whole Bible comes in Genesis 4 when God tells Cain, who is filled with shame and anger at his brother over the rejection of his own sacrifice, if you do well, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin lies at your door. Its desire is for you, but you may rule over it. We all know that he doesn't and that he becomes a murderer of his brother and forced to become a wanderer far off from home and his family for the rest of his days. This familial trauma is then stamped on the generations that follow recorded in Genesis. Noah, the father, is disgraced by one of his sons, and his brothers then take him and send him off into curse and exile. Abraham, fails to wait on the promise of God, and his first son, Ishmael, is forced to go off in exile, lost, and becomes an adversarial people to the child of promise, Isaac. Isaac's blindness and Jacob's deception set him and his brother Esau at odds, who, after their great conflict, have to depart in opposite directions into the wilderness from each other and from their father. Jacob's favoritism, provokes the troubled brotherhood of Joseph and his brothers, who sell him to the descendants of Ishmael from three generations earlier and count him as dead and lost. The story of biblical Israel is the story of broken families, of fathers watching their children's bonds with each other just splinter into pieces after the manner of their own broken pasts. As St. Paul says, Summarizing this whole sad story, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to us all. So when Jesus tells the story of a father and his two sons, he's accessing the painful history of estrangement going back to Israel's and humanity's roots. Their story is all of our stories. The voice of the Pharisees, as they regard Jesus at a distance as that one over there, is mirrored in the supposedly self-righteous elder brother who, in his complaint to the father over the return of his prodigal brother, refers to him as that son of yours in there. The elder brother, like the Pharisees, cannot come to think of the person in front of him as a brother. He refuses to see in the other his own flesh and blood. But since the father in the parable never assents to this labeling, since the father insists always on referring to the returned brother as this thy brother, your brother, 
has returned. The elder brother's attempt to make the younger into a stranger only has the effect of estranging the elder brother to the family. In a twist, the brother who was dead is alive again, but the brother who thought he lived is now to be revealed as one like dead, in the outer darkness alone, refusing to come in to the feast. The only antidote to this estrangement is the father's steady going out, the father's steady forgiveness. In the parable, forgiveness is founded on the father's ability to see his sons truly, seeing both of his sons in their similar but different needs to come back home. The parable points to our need to become like the father, to see all people in this way particularly those we most want to regard as the other brother. Gaining this vision is an arduous process. The steps of growth mean that forgiveness is a journey between seeing in the other a stranger and coming by step to see in the other one of our own, a brother that is at a distance. This restores them to us as a family member, and restores us in the same moment to them as a family member. It doesn't really matter when we hear this parable which brother we think we are. Whether it's the prodigal or the elder brother, we are all in need of the father. We all have need of the family. If we're the prodigal who behaves as though the gifts of the family's estate are independent of the relationships that give them meaning, then we've ceased to live like children of the Father. If we're like the elder brother, who refuses to recognize as a brother someone that the Father always calls a son, then we are no longer children of the Father. Forgiveness is ultimately a yes to the humility of knowing that we all need to be brought in in some way. That, like the Father, we need to be on the lookout for those who need to be brought in in some way. This is not a denial of moral distinction. The prodigal and the elder brother have both done wrong, but for different reasons. The prodigal has factually wasted his substance, all his possessions, and now he has to live with the consequences of that and be a beneficiary for the rest of his life. But it would be a mistake to think that the responsible brother is, because he is responsible, in any less need of receiving all that he has from the father. And this is the thing that he forgets. The older brother, just like the younger, receives all that he has from the father, and all that the father has is his. Our lives are always given to a much greater degree than we're comfortable admitting. The idea of the self-made man is the error of the elder brother, it is the error of the self-righteous Pharisee, and it is ultimately a narcissistic modern fantasy, the person who can always pull themselves up by their own strength. It's not true. There's always much more than we admit that we cannot and do not create about ourselves. And it's when we forget about this that we lose the humility that allows us to be true children of the Father. We become libertines, we become Pharisees, but we do not become what 
sons in the story are called to become, like their father. The parable ends with a feast, the image that Christ most consistently takes up as a symbol of the kingdom. We're given the parable, as we're given all parables, so that we might practice life in the kingdom. It's what we're here to do in the Eucharist today. And the Eucharist is this parable come to life. The end of all things is ushering us in to a celebration of the new creation in the new Jerusalem. It is where all things are tending. It is the site, though, like we learn today, of a great and terrible encounter that is revealed by the parable. All of us will come face to face with each of the prodigals that we've written off, counted as dead. And our salvation will be known in our welcoming them home. We will have to relinquish the pride that makes us superior to them. All of us will have to come face to face with each of the prudent brothers in whose eyes we became the prodigal. And our salvation will be known in the humility to stand before them and to receive the almost unbearable grace of their welcome. All of us will be turned to face the Son of God, our Lord, the brother who truly never went astray, and turned with him to face the Father of all, And our salvation will be known in our kneeling and making the good confession like St. Peter, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We will, in that moment, bear the weight of surprise as they embrace us and do not send us away, that do not complain of our return, but instead, with one voice as the Father and the Son, call for the feast to be made ready. For their beloved child, their brother, their sister has come home at last. That the dead has become a life again in resurrection. As Jesus said, I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who have no need of repentance. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.